Live from lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell, the mass murder in the May 14th shooting at the Topps Friendly Market in Buffalo, New York's predominantly African-American east side neighborhood that left 10 black people dead and two others injured, cited what is called the Great Replacement Theory in his manifesto as his reasoning behind his heinous crime against humanity. While many have attributed his belief in the misguided theory to far-right media outlets like Fox News and pundits like Tucker Carlson, according to our guest today, the real threat comes from political leaders who embrace the theory. And it's not like hate-filled theories like the one acted upon by the Buffalo shooter are theories that are exclusively embraced here in the United States. India's Hindus are in danger and love jihad conspiracy theories have been acted upon for years with the support of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Those theories and how they have been acted upon by vigilante mobs are a cautionary tale for what we may be headed for here in the U.S. It all makes you wonder why only two weeks after that mass killing in Buffalo, President Joe Biden, who called the Great Replacement Theory a poison running through our body politic, and that hate and fear are being given too much oxygen by those who pretend to love America, would be seen at the Quad Summit in Tokyo, shaking Modi's hand while claiming the Indian Prime Minister had shown the world that democracies can deliver. In a few minutes, we'll try and figure out exactly why President Biden would show support for a political leader advocating religious-based violence when we speak with writer Pranay Samayajula who posted the Jacobin Magazine article, From Buffalo to India, the Right's Demographic Paranoia Fuels Deadly Violence. You can follow Pranay on Twitter at P underscore Somayajula, S-O-M-A-Y-A-J-U-L-A. Pranay runs the blog No More Mangoes, which you can find and subscribe to at nomoremangoes.substack.com. Pranay is a Washington, D.C.-based writer who currently serves as advocacy an outreach coordinator for Hindus for Human Rights, a nonprofit founded in 2019 that mobilizes progressive Hindus to speak out against rising hate and fascism. Follow Hindus for Human Rights on Twitter at Hindus4HR. That's the number four. Hindus4HR. Find out more about Hindus for Human Rights at HindusforHumanRights.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty excited about the uh, stripes for the parking lot being painted up back, huh? Oh, yeah, definitely. That was very big. Hey, so how was your uh, first week working uh, solo at the uh, Andersonville Farmer's Market? I mean, it was okay, but I I told them to maybe that we could sell more stuff if there was 
more than one person because it was very busy. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, and I was, I mean, I was like the last person packing up. Like, they're sending another person this week. I, you know, it's going to rain, so they know I need help. <laughs> so for those who are listening to Saturday morning's world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell on WNUR Chicago Sound Experiment, when will you be selling completely legal, completely legal mushrooms at Saturday's Logan Square Farmer's Market? Well, it's actually on Sunday. Sunday, so oh, okay. Sunday from uh, 9 to 3. Yeah, that one That one was very busy this weekend as well. I don't have to set that one up, so it's much easier for so me. So are there a variety of mushrooms that you're selling then? Oh, yeah. We've got, you know, the stuff that come in the grocery store, the cremini and the shiitake. But we also have like maitake and king oyster and oyster. And I have to say, like, I never thought before that I would just like to hang out with mushrooms for like four hours. But like, when was the last time you got to touch mushrooms for like four hours? <laughs> that does sound pretty fantastic. <laughs> so I, I don't want to get you in trouble. And I don't even know if this is the message that you would want to send. Do you think that the mushroom farmers would allow you to wear a This Is Hell t-shirt while selling mushrooms? Or do you think that would be a bad idea, a bad message to be sending to people? Oh, I don't think that they would notice or, I mean, I think it would be fine. The, the company themselves, their shirts say, got shrooms on the front. <laughs> so, wait. <laughs> wait, now I want one of those yeah, t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know where to get the shrooms, so. <laughs> so, uh, that sounds pretty, I really want to come over to see you. And when's the, uh, farmer's market on in andersonville again on wednesdays it's from three to seven so if you work you can come after work yeah it really it's like the only afternoon market pretty much so I, I really want to come over because i really want to check out all those different kinds of mushrooms i didn't know that it was just it wasn't just the stuff that you, i thought it was just going to be the stuff you find in stores and then it was just fresh but i didn't know it was going to be a wider variety yeah no and i mean we usually we don't we haven't had lion's mane but that's a really exciting one that we're supposed to have um you know, it's supposed to be good for your brain. Maitake is good for, like, regulating blood sugar, and it's delicious. And it's kind of expensive, but I don't know. You can't – they are hard to grow. You could forage maitake, but, like, you have to know where to find it. <laughs> There's a really good documentary. It's all about John Cage and his study and love and foraging for mushrooms. So you I did not know John Cage was a mushroom forager. <laughs> yes, it blows it's, my mind. Yeah, you got to look it up. You got to look up John Cage and mushrooms and I'll find out the documentary. Today. It is really, it's really entertaining. As for uh, my week so far, I think I may have pushed myself a bit too much in my full-time return to the show because following our interview with Henry Giraud earlier this week, I was a wreck. I was dizzy, nauseous, basically exhausted to the point that I slept for. 15 of the next 24 hours and when I wasn't sleeping I was wishing I was or maybe close to sleeping for a moment we thought it might be the result of being bitten by a tick while walking in the woods as I suddenly had a red rash on my neck and face but after not finding any evidence of said tick bite we uh, decided it would was probably just dehydration mixed with exhaustion I'm feeling much better now but as we approach what is hopefully my final surgery to address my current health condition, I'm going to take it a lot easier so I don't have to miss any more shows. But more important than any of that, Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and why don't you give us a couple of our listeners' responses. This week's question from hell is, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? These, the answers this week have been outstanding, by the way. So, let's see. What 
is what should I start with? Well, the first one here on Twitter is there's no words, but there's just a gif or a gif of, from the movie Dodgeball of the wrench being thrown. <laughs> that makes at sense. The guy. Sure, throwing wrenches at students. That makes that sounds like a great gym session. Yeah, I like this one too. Satisf- satisfying memes for a hungry, thirsty dot 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 says. Not only is Baby Shark the only workout music allowed, you have to listen to it. <laughs> that does sound really awful. That would actually make gym class worse. Yeah. Uh, F. Tweet Fitzgerald says, we learn to play cricket. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful. That sounds like it would take a lot longer, too, not just one gym class. It would take probably three or four years of gym classes to figure that out. One more, and then we'll go. All right. What policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience from everyone? For everyone. Uh, Penn Donovan says, naturally nude. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. And thank you, Penn, for writing all the way from Australia. That's why that tweet took so long. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for all of your support, especially to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much, and people can subscribe to our Patreon uh, podcast that is going to be airing this week on Thursday by going to patreon.com slash this is hell you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio you can email it to this is hell radio at gmail.com during today's show so Lindsay will be certain to get it must but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment jeff will test to see if fact is dumber than fiction. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Pranay on hate and violence both here in the U.S. as well as in India. Again, the question from hell is, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? You can email us suggestions for topics or comments on the show or guest suggestions or constructive or destructive criticism you can send all of that stuff to chuck at this is hell.com and we'll likely share your thoughts on air listener paul s wrote to us saying hey chuck just wanted to check in and hope you're on the mend while i don't know the spe- specifics of what's ailing you i can certainly relate to having digestive issues I've been dealing with what the doctors call a moderate to severe case of Crohn's disease with complications since I was in middle school, which resulted in a surprise major surgery to remove about 18 inches of inflamed large and small intestines. But that was back in 2016, and I can now say that things are very much under control. You don't realize what you have until it's taken away from you, and this is hell is certainly one of those things that has been taken for me. I, while I generally miss the thought-provoking, informative, and interesting interviews you masterfully conduct, what I miss the most are your show introductions, as they felt like little windows in the lives of you and Alex and all your producers, board ops, and researchers that are part of what makes This Is Hell so special. I anxiously await your full return and hope that 
What forces are guiding the universe are directing you to get well soon. Thank you. Sincerely, Pete. So thanks, Pete, and to everyone who sent such kind messages while I was out and while I have been recuperating. But Pete, when you said you don't realize what you have until it's taken from you, I didn't think you were referring to this as hell. I thought you were referring to your 18 inches of inflamed large and small intestines. I only had 12 inches of my colon removed, and even if you add in my five inches of small intestine, that only adds up to 17 inches of my digestive system compared to your 18 inches. So you win, Pete, or lose, depending on how you look at that kind of thing. And I hope nobody's looking because that's disgusting and anybody looking should be ashamed of themselves. Coming up, hate-based violence from the United States to India. We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon pod- podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash hell. We'll be sharing more of your emails. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth. We'll share this week in rotten history, and we'll tell you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show. And we will be reminding you about this summer's This Is Art Art Show, sponsored by our good friends here at This Is Hell, as well as our anniversary and listener appreciation party, also happening later this summer. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. With so many mass shootings and killings here in the United States, it's easy to move on from one to the next, at least temporarily, forgetting the horrors of earlier mass murders. But far too many of these hateful acts are being linked to fear-fueled and completely unfounded conspiracy theories that have led to deadly violence, and not only here in the U.S. Here to help us understand that this is increasingly becoming a global phenomenon, and far too often happening for related reasons. We are very happy to have on our show writer Pranay Samayajula, who wrote the Jacobin Magazine article from Buffalo to India, The Rights Demographic Paranoia Fuels Deadly Violence. Welcome to This Is Hell, Pranay. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. This is such fantastic writing. And there's so much of this that I don't think people are aware of here in the U.S., so I'm really glad that we're getting the opportunity to discuss this. You write that one day after the deadly supermarket shooting in Buffalo, New York, on May 14th, it was reported to absolutely nobody's surprise that the shooter had published a 180-page document online detailing his plans for the massacre, which targeted a black community and left 10 dead. In the document, the shooter outlined the racist ideology that had motivated the attack, with a particular emphasis on the so-called replacement theory, the white supremacist conspiracy theory that holds that liberal immigration policies and promotion of diversity are part of a sustained conspiracy, usually led by Jews, to flood the country with foreign migrants and replace the white majority. So, of course, not all mass shootings and killings are driven by the great replacement theory or target migrants. That said, what impact do you think mass shootings, whatever the shooter's professed reasoning is, have on mass shootings more generally. Do mass shootings, whatever the hateful reasoning, beget more mass shootings, even if that reasoning seems unrelated? I mean, mean, I'm inclined to say yes, in in the sense that, you know, especially the kind of the way that they're reported on um, as these like sensationalized incidents that are, you know, not talked about as part of a broader pattern 
um, except by like those who have a more critical bent. But when you have one of the, usually when you have one of these mass shootings, right, the media narrative about it is it was a lone wolf massacre. How did this happen? You know, they'll have the, the neighbor or the friend say, oh, he always seemed like a perfectly normal guy. I'm shocked that this happened. And then they'll, you know, do a lot of reporting on the, on the manifesto that he wrote. Sometimes the, uh, sometimes the reporting will include quotes from it and the message that sends to other people who are being radicalized and who are you know descending down that path is that this is a way to become immortalized and to gain notoriety and so i and i think that in that sense they're both a symptom and a cause yeah one of the things that we have been hearing from people on the right they've been trying to figure out ways what they can blame it on and one of the things that they have been blaming it on is uh, social media. Do you think that that urge for notoriety, that urge for self-aggrandizement, that social media, it, do you think social media is, uh, what do you think social media's a, a role is in whether these uh, this violence is happening in India or the United States? What do you think social media's role in this is? And is it over-exaggerated? I mean, I, I think you'd have to be pretty delusional to say that social media doesn't play a role. I also think, though, that when the right says that it's because they're trying to deflect attention away from the more fundamental underlying causes, which is the fact that like their politicians and their media figures are allowing white supremacist ideology to become mainstream. But I do think, I mean, you know, the shooter um, here and, and also in Christchurch in New Zealand in 2019 and time and time again have will stream the massacre on Twitch or on Facebook Live or whatever it may be, right? And often radicalized in 4chan forums. So I think that like social media by sort of, especially in an age where it's, where social media platforms controlled by these tech giants with the have essential monopolies and allow like, you know, fascist and Nazi and, and white supremacist ideology and hate speech to go without any sort of check or any sort of, any sort of balancing force, um, of course, is going to give rise to this sort of radicalization. But to say that it's just social media and that's the only cause and therefore that's the only thing we should be paying attention to is a pretty disingenuous deflection tactic by the right. One of the things I really appreciate about your writing is that you offer a context that a lot of people don't consider when they're talking about the Great Replacement Theory. You write, for instance, that the roots of the Great Replacement Theory, which has motivated white supremacist, white supremacist attacks from Christchurch, New Zealand to El Paso, Texas, reach back decades. In April 1968, the far-right British politician Enoch Powell delivered his infamous Rivers of Blood speech, which warned that, quote, in this country in 15 or 20 years' time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man as a result of a large-scale immigration and the embrace of multiculturalism. And it just makes me think about how multiculturalism is even a dog whistle for this kind of violence and towards uh, people based on race. Are such calls admissions of racial inequality, privilege, and racist supremacy that people like Powell supported institutional racism? Because because the same people who have made these kinds of statements also insist there is no racial inequality, privilege, uh, supremacy, or institutional racism. So do they openly support a system they also deny exists? I mean, absolutely. I think it's, you know, there is, they never say it openly, but there is it's sort of implicit in, in statements like that. And, it, you know, it goes back even further back than Enoch Powell, as I mentioned in the piece, you know, you have this, 
idea of like in the early in the turn of the 20th century eugenicists and early like white supremacist thinkers were saying things like racial intermarriage will cause a destruction of the white race um and it's all these theories go back even further than that and it's always got this sort of implicit um like this implicit statement that you know if we allow minorities to take over they're going to do to us the same things that we did to them but of course they're not going to say that because they're also saying we are not doing anything wrong so yeah it's absolutely you know in, inconsistent but uh, it doesn't stop them from saying it of course and this is where you get to the idea of form why is form so important in disseminating a racist belief like the great replacement theory yeah, I think it's because, you know, I mean, you can't deny that, especially, you know, the last few years, the last several years since Trump administration and the rise of sort of this new alt-right, new, new right sort of um, dynamic in the United States, especially that there has been an increased normalization of extremist far-right ideology and um, that these theories that like are more acceptable now than they were, say, 15 years ago to stay in the mainstream uh, political discourse, but still there are limitations, right? Like Tucker Carlson, as much as I'm sure he'd love to, can't get up on his show on Fox News and openly spew racial slurs or openly say that white people are the master race. So instead, the, he, there is sort of a degree of rhetorical posturing and dog whistling that has to take place. So what I, when I say that in the context of this piece, what I'm arguing is that you know, even as the great replacement theory has been invoked by people like Tucker Carlson or GOP politicians like Blake Masters in Arizona or uh, Elise Stefanik in New York, um, they're not, you know, saying the most extreme version of it, the kind that you see on 4chan forums, which is this idea of white genocide, quote unquote. Um, instead, what they'll talk about is the Democrats are promoting mass immigration of, uh, you know, foreign immigrants to come into America change our demographics so that they can like have uh, control over our electoral system because they'll have a new majority. Um, and it's often like couched in this language of things like election security, uh, like crime, uh, law and order. So the, so in that sense, the, this theory takes on a different form because it's modified to be slightly less extreme, slightly more palatable so as to be acceptable in mainstream political discourse. Um, and not dismissed out of hand, but the substance, even though the form has changed, the substance is entirely the same. It's still fundamentally a white supremacist narrative that implies that, you know, people of a different race coming into a country somehow pose a threat. Like that is the same fundamental thesis in any particular iteration of this theory, regardless of how it's said by those who are promoting it. And you also mentioned other hopeful new right candidates like J.D. Vance in Ohio, Blake Masters in uh, Arizona, uh, who embraced the white replacement theory. But uh, you point out that five years later, after Enoch made the speech, Enoch Powell made the speech, you uh, write that five years later in 1973, French author Jean Raspal published The Camp of the Saints, a virulently racist novel in which France and other Western countries are overrun by barbaric, dark-skinned migrants. Looking further back, warnings of white extinction and declining racial hygiene brought about by immigration and racial inter intermarriage have featured centrally in the speeches and writings of white supremacists throughout history, from turn-of-the-century eugenicists in uh, Nazi Germany in the 1930s 
The Great Replacement Theory, as we know it today, however, was first articulated in 2010-2011 by French author Renaud Camus, not to be confused with 20th century author Albert Camus, who was uh, deeply influenced by the views of Powell and Raspall, and whose writings on the Great Replacement remain highly influential in in the far right and white nationalist circles to this day. But when we do discuss eugenics, if there is a conversation about it, we often think of it as an idea that was adopted by Nazi Germany from writings that uh, emanated from the United States. However, in 1883, British explorer and natural scientist Francis Galton is often cited as the originator of the term near the height of the British Empire. What is the relationship between the Great Replacement Theory and the rationalization of colonialism and imperialism? How much is the continuation of and support for imperialism and colonialism at the heart of the Great Replacement Theory? That's a really great question. Um, and, you know, I think to, an- to answer that, I'm reminded of this this quote. Um, I don't remember who said it. It's floated around, you know, and left social media circles for quite some time. But this idea that fascism is what you get when the methods of colonial rule are applied at home in the metropole. And I think that that kind of gets at the heart of it, right? Is that there is this, you know, obviously Western, white Western nations, whether that's America, whether that's England, France, any, you know, European Western country have been practicing colonialism and the attendant sort of trappings of white supremacy for centuries. And this, but then they're threatened by the idea of people from countries, often countries that they formerly colonized. When when Enoch Powell delivered his Rivers of Blood speech, he was talking about migrants mostly from countries that had been under British rule and were now gaining independence coming to the UK. And so despite the fact that they have for centuries been repressing and, you know, dominating and subjugating the peoples of different countries in other parts of the world, are now threatened by the prospect of those people coming having their countries having been destroyed um, by colonialism, those people then coming to the Western country to seek out a new life and that somehow poses a threat. And so, I mean, in that sense that like those, these two are linked because if the great replacement is at its core, a paranoia about what happens when quote unquote foreigners or minorities come and overrun our, our white utopia, that cannot be separated from the history of colonialism, the history of colonial violence and imperialist violence that precipitate, you know, large scale migration in the first place. Um, or even in the, even, you know, not just colonialism in terms of like a country colonizing somewhere else in the world, but you also look at the great replacement here in the United States. I mean, the, like the, the, tar- the targeting of a black community by the Buffalo shooter like that can't be, and the idea that he's worried about, you know, black people overtaking white people um, in America, that can't be separated from the history of, of slavery and the like, which is it's sort of an, a form of internal colonial violence practiced against uh, black people by, you know, white America for centuries. And so in that sense, yeah, they're definitely inseparable. 
And you also point out that halfway across the world in India, where Modi's far-right BJP government is seeking to transform India into an ethnic majoritarian Hindu supremacist state along the lines of uh, Hindu nationalist ideology, similar tropes are deployed by politicians, similar tropes to the Great Replacement Theory, similar tropes are being uh, deployed by politicians and media figures alike on a regular basis. Those tropes are best summarized by the Hindu slogan, which translates to Hindus are in danger. This slogan uh, frequently raised by Hindu nationalists who aspire to transform India from a secular, secular pluralist democracy into a Hindu nation encompasses a wide range of issues from fertility rates to interfaith relationships that fuel the Hindu far right's demographic paranoia. So here in the States, some mainstream media outlets are only now recognizing the rise of Christian nationalism, especially within the ranks of conservative politics, the right and the Republican Party. Why is religious nationalism gaining ground globally now, whatever the nation and religion happens to be? Is this a reaction or response to globalization, to neoliberalism, or in response to something else? You know, that's kind of uh, the million-dollar question, right? And um, I suppose if I I had the answer to that, I could write a best-selling book or something. But, I mean, it's hard to say. I, I do think that that definitely plays a role in terms of the, you know, in this neoliberal order where like globalization has meant, has not meant an increase of tolerance or an increase of, you know, like cultural connection so much as it has meant the um, offshoring of, of, of factories, the, you know, um, destruction of people's economic communities and and so on there's a lot of resentment that that engenders which it's very easy for you know then the billionaires and the um ownership class who are behind that to deflect blame um and point and and say that no you shouldn't hate the ceos who offshored your factory you should hate the immigrants who came and took your job even though that's not true Um, and when those when those others when those supposed scapegoats are you know, they, they have a different skin color, they have a different race, they practice a different religion, that really gives rise to them, those who want to exploit that in support of like, a, specifically a religious nationalism, for example, um, to take advantage of that and, and say, you know, this wouldn't be a problem if we had, this wouldn't be a problem if India was a Hindu, a Hindu nation, it wouldn't be a problem if America was a Christian state, um, and, and so on and so forth. But I, I think that also, although this sort of nationalism is is really often religious in its language and its rhetoric to call it solely a religious nationalism I think is to overlook the fact that it's really at its core just another variant of ethnic nationalism that you know Christian Christian extremist nationalists in the United States don't mean when they say they want America to be a Christian nation that doesn't mean they want an America where people of all different races just all happen to be Christian they mean they want America to be a white Christian nation you know similarly it's in, in, in India, it's it, it's not, although the Hindu right does, you know, really promote like mass conversion of religious minorities to Hindus, they always view the quote unquote pure Hindus as, as superior. And so it's really at its core an ethnic nationalism that just takes on a, a religious form for the purposes of, of rhetoric and mobilization. You also mentioned a 2002 rally in Gujarat 
Shortly following the horrific violence in which Modi has since been personally implicated as chief minister of the state, he repeated tropes about Muslim marriage habits and birth rates, mocking Muslims with the slogan, uh, let's see, uh, We Five, Our 25, a spoof on the old family planning slogan of We Two Parents, Our Two Children. This fear-mongering about Muslim population rates, which closely mirrors white nationalist fears of a growing non-white population, is not even remotely rooted in reality. If these statements are inaccurate, if they're not remotely rooted in reality, what explains their success? Can we simply blame the media in India or the United States for a lack of fact-checking, or does that lack of accuracy even matter to racial and religious and ethnic supremacists? Um, I mean, I don't think, I, I, I don't think it necessarily matters to them in the sense that they know that, they, you know, if they say it, if they say something in convincing enough a voice, their base will eat it up. And, you know, especially in this quote from Modi was in, um, although it's been repeated by right-wing figures in India since at the time, it was in 2002, this was pre, even today, you know, not every Indian has access to the internet, even compared to the US. And that was certainly even more so the case in 2002. Um, and so when the politician makes, makes, these, makes these claims about Muslims have a much, much higher birth rate and their population is gonna overtake the Hindu population in 50 years, it's easier to take that at face value than it is to you know, go through the effort of trying to look that up. And then in, you know, we talk a lot about fake news spreading and, and disinformation spreading on Facebook and Twitter and stuff here in the US. Um, in India, Facebook plays a major role in that and you know, has been sharply criticized for its role in allowing fake news um, against minorities to spread. But then also you have this ecosystem of WhatsApp you know, where it's people, fake news spreads like, like wildfire on WhatsApp. Um, and it's been a really integral part of the BJP and the Hindu right more broadly, how they have been able to spread their message, recruit people into their cause, has been by viral content on WhatsApp that just sort of organically gets spread by people forwarding it to their friends and family who forward it to their friends and family in the sort of snowball. And before you know it, everyone has seen this video um, that turns out to be completely doctored, but by the time someone raises the alarm that, hey, this is doctored, this is fake news, everyone's seen it, and plenty of people have chosen to believe it already. You mentioned birth rate uh, just now, and you write, indeed, some of the proposed bills in India are more explicit about their intentions than others. The chief minister of the BJP ruled Indian state of Assam, for example, has announced plans to create a population army in the state tasked with distributing contraceptives and information about population control, specifically in Muslim areas. So should we all be concerned about any concerns, supposed concerns, alleged concerns over population control measures, even those that are supposedly well-meaning, for instance, when they're packaged as ways to combat malnutrition, food shortages, famines, or other resource shortages? Should we should, when we hear people talking about population control, should we understand that, interpret it, and translate it as a dog whistle for hatred? Um, yes, I, and in the sense that, you know, I mean, India also has a really fascinating and disturbing history with population control in the sense, if you look at Indira Gandhi's policies as prime minister during the emergency in the 70s when her government had this sort of mass policy of forced sterilization in like urban slums and among the, 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 the ultra, the extremely poor um, of like, you know, it was supposedly voluntary, but really coerced sterilization as a way of combating 
supposed overpopulation. So I, I don't think that the sort of population control bills that I referenced in this article that have been passed in some states and are being proposed now at the national level are necessarily going to go as far as as like going any, anywhere or into a Muslim community and like forcibly sterilizing people. Although, you know, I, I mean, I hope that's not the case, but things are rapidly deteriorating in India. But I think more the concern is that we know what's motivating it because it's the same politician who says Muslims are having babies more than Hindus are, that poses a threat. And then the next week they introduce a population control law. So you can connect the dots and say, well, what's clear, even if the law applies to everybody, it's clear who they have in mind. And it's also then clear that when they're talking about what, what communities are causing the population problem, you know which communities are going to reference. It's going to be the Muslims, it's going to be the minorities. Um, and that's really shown by this like chief minister of Assam where he's going to have his army of volunteers going into just the Muslim neighborhoods to, distrib to distribute contraception and literature about population control. And then of course, all of this is, you know, in India, even to a much greater degree than in America, and I talk about this in the piece as well, um, this, like a lot of the sort of enforcement of a Hindu supremacist Hindu ideology doesn't come from the state as much as it does from vigilantes, from these mobs of private citizens who act with the tacit or overt support of the state, but still act independently. And they're the ones who are going to be emboldened, who already are emboldened by the promulgation of this sort of fear mongering um, and demographic paranoia by their political uh, leaders um, on the right. We are speaking with advocacy and outreach coordinator for Hindus for Human Rights, Pranaya Samayajula, who posted the Jacobin Magazine article from Buffalo to India, The Rights Demographic Paranoia Fuels Deadly Violence. Uh, here in the States, Chris, we're talking about Christian nationalism. Christian nationalists insist the United States was founded as a Christian nation, and the writers of the founding documents meant it to be a Christian nation. Is there a similar belief about India being originally from its independence on meant to be a Hindu nation? And if there is, how accurate is such an understanding of Indian history? This is a really interesting question because um, it's, you know, quite complex because India was obviously, you know, from its founding, I mean, was founded to be a secular, a secular liberal democracy. Um, and its early founders, Nehru and, and others were very explicit about not wanting it to be, even though it's a Hindu majority country um, after partition, not wanting it to be a Hindu country, uh, rather to be a country of like pluralism where all faiths, all peoples are equal um, are equal. But there, this idea of Hindu nationalism, that India should be a Hindu state, and the ideology that um, the term for this ideology is Hindutva, that predates India's independence. And it was, you know, first really started to gain steam in the 20s and 30s um, when um, the, these, these two writers, uh, V.D. Savarkar and M.S. Golwalkar, were writing. And they were, they, they really, um, in their writings, their manifestos that to this day influence the Hindu, Hindu nationalist movement, did talk about you know, India, the true Indians have always been Hindus and that from time immemorial, India has been the land of the Hindus and everyone else, they're, they're kind of transplants from elsewhere, the Muslims, the Christians, um, the, the other communities, they're all from elsewhere. They're not, they often sort of invo evoke this language of indigeneity that they're not indigenous to this land in the way that Hindus are. And so even at the time, you know, the Hindu nationalist movement and their organizations, which were 
growing in, in membership and power at the time of independence actually were not heavily involved in the independence struggle precisely because they felt that it was taking India in the wrong direction by pushing for a secular uh, liberal democracy rather than an overt Hindu state. Um, and so now that that movement is in power and is the dominant political force in India, they're trying to realize that dream that they've had unrealized for so long. So uh, what role, if any, does India's caste system play in this violence towards Muslim and in this Hindu nationalism? Um, that's another, you know, really, it's, it's, this is a very, very like complex um, and trick question, which could be the, I mean, it is the subject of entire books, but I think to try and answer it um, briefly, you know, the, the Hindu right has this really interesting and, and co contradictory relationship to the caste, the caste system, because at its core, Hindutva is a caste supremacist ideology. It is very much rooted in a very Brahmin-centered idea of what Hindu means. Um, they are, you know, people who support Hindu nationalism are often extremely casteist in their, both in their views and in their actions. Um, and yet the BJP often does very well among oppressed caste communities in terms of like their percentage of the vote share in elections. Um, and this is, I think, because part of what the Hindu nationalist movement recognizes is that upper caste Hindus, Brahmins and other dominant castes are that they don't constitute a big enough numbers to have the majority they need for a Hindu state. So in order to have a Hindu majority state, a Hindu state, they need to sort of like bring more people into the fold of a Hindu. So they'll often talk a big game about they they don't see caste, you know, it doesn't matter what your caste is, we're all Hindus and we're all band together, even as internally they replicate caste violence and the same mobs that are attacking Hindus will often go and attack um, a Dalit youth for, you know, trying to, to marry someone from an upper caste or so on. Um, but they'll pay at the same time, the movement will pay lip service to this idea that caste is a thing of the past or that we're moving past it because they need to construct a Hindu majority, a unified Hindu majority that doesn't necessarily otherwise exist. You also mentioned the love jihad conspiracy theory, which baselessly purports that Muslim men are engaged in a targeted conspiracy to abduct Hindu women or seduce them into love marriages, forcibly converting them to Islam so that they can produce more Muslim children to fuel the supposed demographic takeover. And you add that the love jihad conspiracy theory, which plays into vile colonial era tropes of virile Muslim men posing an existential threat to the purity of Hindu women has gone mainstream on the Hindu right in recent years, particularly with the rise to power of Yogi Adityanath, who has made uh, Love Jihad a central facet of his particular brand of Hindutva. Under Adityanath's leadership, Uttar Pradesh has passed an anti-Love Jihad law uh, targeting forced conversion through interfaith marriages and similar laws have been passed or proposed in several other states within India. So historically, a similar, a similar belief has been uh, embraced by white supremacists here in the United States upon African Americans. Why are minorities always depicted as virile by racists? Um, I think, I, I think it's because that is a very, it's very low hanging fruit in the sense that, you know, 
and it really shows the intersections of these various bigotries and oppressions, whether it's white supremacy or Hindu supremacy or whatever it may be, it shows the intersections of that with patriarchy, right? Um, and, and with, and with uh, gender oppression, because it's very low hanging fruit if a culture or society already buys into the idea that women are weak, women need to be protected, that they are property, that they don't have agency on their own, it's then very easy to say, to tie that to, but look, the big scary minority is going to come and steal your daughter and is going to, and is, is going to, you know, like defile her by, by, by marrying her. Um, and then is going to produce mixed race children or whatever it is. And that is, you know, disgusting, but then it's also very, it's very, it's, it's a very easy narrative to push um, by playing into those existing anxieties that come from a patriarchal society, which both India and the United States and really anywhere in the world is. And you write that similar to the Great Replacement Theory in the West, the Hindus are in danger narrative has taken on a deadly significance, leading to horrific violence against the marginalized communities who are accused of conspiring to engineer a demographic overthrow of the majority community. So globally, is the right wing pushing an agenda of apartheid does the right worldwide believe in and you know support that kind of institutional racism because you would think with the global uprising against South African apartheid back in the 1980s that the whole world would have turned on apartheid so is is the right wing still pushing for an agenda of apartheid um i think i think yes but i think they are more subtle about it now than they were before you know it'll be whether you see this time and time again, I mean, both in America and in Europe and in India, anywhere in the world where the right is in ascendance, they will, through their policy, through their actions, will really push the most horrific targeted attacks against minorities, all while in their rhetoric and their language paying lip service to this idea that you know, we're, we're trying to treat everyone equally, you know, we don't see race, we don't see whatever. Um, so they're not, so I, I think that in, the, in that sense, absolutely committed to that same idea of apartheid, just more subtle about it in order to appeal to more liberal um, sensibilities. Getting back to what you were saying before about the form of how that message is delivered. You write, although there are many parallels between the two narratives of the Great Replacement Theory and the Hindus are in danger campaign, they also differ in certain key ways. And it is these differences that highlight the extent to which India can serve as a cautionary tale for what happens when the global far right's demographic paranoia is allowed to move from the fringe into the mainstream. And here in the U.S., that mainstream seems to be most represented by the Fox News Channel. Uh, Of course, it's also by, you know, on many non-mainstream outlets that still have huge audiences. But when it comes to mainstream dissemination of the Great Replacement Theory, it's mostly Fox News. Is the Hindus are in danger narrative in India also relegated to one far-right network as well as a group of far-right online outlets? In India, is it any more or less mainstream than the replacement theory is here in the United States? Um, I think that there are, you know, the far right in India does have its sort of own e- media ecosystem of outlets, things like, you know, ZTV, Swaraj Magazine, um, Op India, like these various sort of like right-wing outlets that are very big there. I think though, in my understanding, um, in my experience, the way that this sort of it's not so much all concentrated in one source 
as it is in America, where it's like Fox News is sort of the voice of the right wing. Even other things like Infowars, whatever, are still viewed even by a lot of conservatives as kind of fringe or too out there. Um, in India, it's I think a little more dispersed. And then also the additional sort of platform of, of WhatsApp, because Indian right wing extremists, they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter, just like American right wing extremists, but then they're also on WhatsApp, which is such a massive part of just like, I mean, if you're in India, everybody has WhatsApp. And so it's a, a really, really valuable tool for them to be able to use and in order to spread their conspiracy theories, whether that's love jihad, whether that's, you know, this or that or whatever it may be. And we've heard the same thing from our correspondent in uh, Brazil, Brian Mir, about the power of WhatsApp. On our show back in the 2000s, both Arundhati Roy and Fatima Bhutto warned us of the power conspiracy theories more generally we're having on politics in India as well as in Pakistan and how the same thing could and would likely happen here in the United States. In your opinion, what can be done, if anything, to combat hate-filled conspiracy theories that have already made it into mainstream media? What is effective in stopping hate from becoming mainstream, especially through conspiracy theories? I think it's an uphill battle, you know? I mean, because part of the problem is that the platforms on which this hate is spreading are not public forums. They're privately owned by mega corporations, right? I mean, even Facebook and WhatsApp are both owned by Meta. And it's the, 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 the like oligarchs, the tech oligarchs who own these platforms, they might, when they're called before a congressional hearing, might say, we're doing everything we can to combat the spread. We put little fact check flag on articles or whatever. But at the end of the day, it is good business for them to have this sort of hate and extremism because that is what fuels the clicks. That is what keeps people coming back to the website, what fuels the ad revenue. Um, they're not going to get rid of that. And so it's an uphill battle. I think that what what is necessary is the promotion and the cultivation i mean it's one of the things that's necessary is the promotion and cultivation of really robust independent media uh because also the part of the problem is that sort of the established corporate media outlets um especially in the us you know don't do enough uh, a good enough nearly a good enough job of calling into question really why like why are why is this hate spreading you know they focus on the surface level issues rather than rather than the fundamentals. Um, I think in India, there is, you know, a growing and a really strong um, network of alternative media, like that are, have pretty wide reaches, outlets like The Wire, like Scroll, um, and, so, and, and so Alt News and so on. Um, there's also though, a, a struggle in India is that there, although India's constitution guarantees press freedom, it, that is, in practice, not even compared to the US respected as much and journalists in India. I mean, India just fell several places on the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index because, you know, the government has pretty strong leeway to impose censorship or target journalists and dissidents uh, as they see fit. So I don't know if I have a great answer to that question. It's an uphill battle, um, unfortunately. And you point out that the first major difference between the Great Replacement and Hindus Are in Danger campaign is in the targets of each narrative's respective paranoia. In the United States, the boogeyman is the foreigner, the hordes of migrants supposedly descending upon our borders, demanding to be let in so that they can take over and the internal enemies who are accused of conspiring to enable them, as you were mentioning earlier. In India, however, the supposed threat is coming from within, namely the Muslim minority that makes up some 20% of the Indian population. 
Do you think the Great Replacement Theory in the United States will evolve into an insider uprising rather than an outsider uprising? Do you think that's the next st step in the conspiracy theory and paranoia here in the States? I mean, I think as, you know, America continues to diversify and as, as the immigrant populations continue to grow and then white communities are now have maybe more neighbors who are from a different country or you know more neighbors who are from, who are of a different racial or ethnic background that's going to like like the the that in of itself is not going to be enough to stop this scourge of white supremacy or um of this distrust of the other what's going to change is that the nature of that is going to evolve into something more where suddenly you're no longer being told to fear the person who's at the border trying to get in, you're being told to fear the person who's already in the country who lives next door to you. And that that is when I think, you know, if theories like that aren't really stopped by um, forceful public opposition before they get to that point, that's when you start to get to a situation like what we have in India, where this sort of violence based in this demographic, uh, demographic paranoia is an ongoing daily reality, maybe at a lower and less sensationalistic level than the like mass shootings in Buffalo or New Zealand or wherever, but it's kind of this daily reality at a lower level um, and this pervasive climate of fear. And I think that's the sense in which India can serve as a cautionary tale for what happens when these theories spread unchecked. And as far as the evolution of that hatred happening here in the U.S., you write that as opposed in the United States. In India, the violence engendered by the Hindus are in danger narrative takes on a different dimension altogether. Rather than sporadic instances of high-profile mass casualty killings, the open promulgation of anti-Muslim conspiracy theories by mainstream political leaders, coupled with a pervasive culture of impunity for perpetrators, results in a situation in which ongoing lower-intensity violence against minorities seems to be becoming a daily reality. While attacks by vigilante mobs may not result in the death tolls of massacres such as Christchurch or Buffalo, and as a result do not garner the same media attention as these higher-profile attacks, they nevertheless contribute to a pervasive cultural fear for the minorities who find themselves the target of this unremitting assault. So in the States, it's fewer acts of violence by individuals, yet those attacks are more deadly, while in India there are more attacks and they are conducted by mobs, but they are less deadly, even though when they are, on the whole, larger acts of violence. Is, again, is that the direction the United States could be headed in, even with bans on assault rifles or background checks on gun purchases, more regular events of mob violence that are less deadly but increasingly intimidating because they are organized attacks by groups rather than what the media reports as random acts of violence by individuals in who they claim have mental illness. Is that the direction we may be going in? Mob violence rather than these individual attacks? I think it's very possible. And I think that, you know, something that is very concerning and points in that direction is the fact that in both countries, you have this sort of collaboration, sympathy, sympathy, you can call it different things between these mob vigilante private citizen actors and the agents of the state, namely the police and law enforcement. In India, you know, oftentimes when you see these, the news story of some town in some rural part of Uttar Pradesh, a mob attacked a Muslim boy because he married a Hindu girl and they were accusing him of love jihad. Ten paragraphs into the story, it'll mention that something about how the local police inspector 
you know, didn't do anything about it, or they acted with the tacit approval of, of the police inspector. And then I think about in the summer of 2020, during the uprisings after George Floyd murder, you heard, you saw videos on Twitter um, of cities around the country during the, the uprisings of police officers, you know, shaking hands and laughing and chatting it up with Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and these other far-right militia types who had showed up to supposedly support the police and supposedly help protect private property, quote-unquote. Um, and that, like, what allows this sort of mob violence to be so pervasive and dangerous in India is a culture of impunity that comes from a law enforcement and an apparatus of the state that is okay with it happening. And I think in the US, you know, it's pretty clear what side the police are on. I mean, it's pretty clear where the where the American law enforcement sympathies lie, and it's not with the marginalized minorities. And I think that is cause for grave concern. Why do you think the media wasn't more upset or more critical of the police taking sides between two sides that are trying to well, they're trying to antagonize each other. They're trying to fight each other. They have two different political views. Why do you think the media wasn't more upset and more critical of the police in taking sides in what is essentially a political confrontation? Do you mean um, the Indian context or in America? Either one or both. I mean, I think that's that's it's, that's that's a tough question. Um, I do think. I mean, in the U.S., it, that's kind, it's not surprising in the sense that. You know, you every time, even anytime there's a police shooting or an instance of high profile police brutality, like there, you know, you see those videos that compare the language of the media reports about it to the language of the police department's press release. And it's often like 80 to 90 percent overlap in like that, like word for word copy language um, in the news reports and in the press release from the police department. So I think that in the U.S. we have a problem where the media just kind of blindly parrots the police narrative on anything and everything um, and without really critically questioning it. Um, in India, I think, you know, I guess I'm not sure exactly what is um, at the heart of that problem. I think there's more of an awareness of this dynamic than maybe there was before, but by and large, I mean, it remains, um, it, it, it remains to be a, a, a big problem, uh, but I'm not, I guess I'm not, I can't really speculate as to what is exactly at the heart of that. Right. That would be kind of guessing what people's motivations are. So does the Hindus are in danger narrative work in advancing the popularity of the BJP? And if so, do you believe that the more the Republican Party here in the States embraces the great replacement theory, the more electoral success they will have and the more the theory will go mainstream? and become even deadlier. Is this a successful campaign for the BJP? Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, it has been wildly successful. It is what has propelled them to power. And, you know, they, every election and um, they just grow their vote share. They grow their number of seats um, in the, in the chamber of parliament. They increase their mandate to govern and to push forward these anti-minority uh, anti Hindu supremacist pol uh, policies. And it's because, and this is, you know, I touch on this in a piece, another piece I wrote for Protean magazine um, called the Hindu rights deniability politics, which is that even, and you see this in America too, even when the highest profile leaders of the BJP, whether it's Modi, whether it's Amit Shah or the other sort of top brass of the party, even when they are not the ones who are openly getting on stage and saying the conspiracy theories, like Modi himself is usually, is not so blatant and explicit in his use of this language, even that that quote, uh, the We Five Hour 25, that was from 2002, it was a long time ago. 
they still reap the benefits when sort of their underlings in the party, the lower level politicians who are more, you know, they're the ones who can say the controversial thing and then get the, the brunt of the backlash for it. That still mobilizes the base that still fires up the Hindus to uh, the Hindu base to be like, oh, no, we are we are under attack because our politicians and our media are saying so. And then that the benefits of that electorally trickle up to the party at all levels, including Modi and including the other leadership in the party. Um, and that is very much a but meanwhile, that, that party leadership and the, the top brass can maintain plausible deniability to say that we can't control everything our subordinates say. Um, and so it's this kind of balance, a rhetorical balancing act that has served them very, very well um, and is probably only going to continue to do so. And as we, as I started, uh, said during the introduction, uh, you uh, write that in a speech in Buffalo three days after the shooting in Buffalo, U.S. President Joe Biden condemned the white supremacist ideology that motivated the shooter, including the Great Replacement Theory, as a poison running through our body politic, asserting that hate and fear are being given too much oxygen by those who pretend to love America. Less than two weeks later, Biden met with Prime Minister Modi at the Quad Summit in Tokyo, shaking the latter hand, Modi's hand, and proclaiming that the Indian leaders' political successes have shown the world that democracies can deliver. So to you, what explains that kind of support for Modi from Biden? Why show support for a political leader who advocates his own version of the Great Replacement Theory when you're condemning the Great Replacement Theory? I mean, it's the same reason that the Biden administration and the Obama, like the Obama administration before, talks a big game about human rights and democracy and justice, but then maintains close ties and is a deep ally of Saudi Arabia or Israel or any of the other countries that are, you know, promoting supremacist and um, politics and human rights violations. It's because it's in the U.S. national interest. India is a rising power. It can be sort of a counterweight to China and now to, to, to Russia, although although I think India has been frustrating to the State Department on that front um, in terms of the Russia-Ukraine war. But um, I think that, you know, I mean, it's, it's a economic power. We have so much uh, money tied up there. Our companies invest there. Like, it's very easy to say at a press conference that, we're committed to defending democracy and human rights and the rights of minorities around the world. But at the end of the day, the oppressed minorities aren't the ones who are signing the deal to buy fighter jets from us. It's Modi. So of course, you're going to shake his hand. Um, the hypocrisy is, is disgusting, but not surprising. So by shaking Modi's hand, is Biden fueling more race-based violence by the far right here in the United States? Or, are, or is he just betting on the fact that people in the United States aren't aware of what the politics are within India or that he shook Modi's hand in Tokyo? Uh, I think the latter. I mean, I think part of the problem is that, you know, which is part of why I wrote this piece, um, because when I saw what was happened, it happened in, in Buffalo, you know, the parallels immediately clicked in my head. But I knew that for most Americans, the knowledge of India, even if you know that, okay, maybe there's this guy Modi in India, and I've heard he's done some bad things. I don't really know what's going on with that. Like the media does not report on India as much. It's more so than it used to, but still there's not this level of awareness. And so I think that Biden knows that, you know, he can get away with it um, because Modi is not like the bad guy, so to speak, in the, the the minds of many Americans in the way that Putin right now is like the bad guy, right? Or Xi Jinping is the bad guy. Um, and that gives him that gives him sort of breathing room to 
uh, talk out of both sides of his mouth when it comes to India, even as, as I mentioned, his own, like his own government agency, the US Commission for International Religious Freedom for the third year in a row has recommended that the State Department designate India as a country of particular concern for religious freedom violations. Um, and then for the third year in a row, um, the State Department Secretary of State has said, no, we're not going to do that. I mean, it's completely hypocritical talking out of both sides of his mouth and it's absolutely taking advantage of the fact that most Americans don't know and don't care about what's going on um, in India. And that don't know part, that's something that we were discussing when this show started way back in 1996, when we were talking about how uh, media outlets were underfunding and closing down foreign news bureaus all over the world and were stopping with international news because it had it was too costly for them. It hurt their bottom line too much. And during the corporatization right. of those media outlets at that time, while all of a sudden the United States and, uh, you know, the citizens of the United States become more ignorant. It's just the same process. It's what people were talking about would happen back in 1996, will happen, and that's exactly what is happening. We have been speaking with Pranay Samayajula, who posted the Jacobin Magazine article from Buffalo to India, The Rights Demographic Paranoia Fuels Deadly Violence. You can follow Pranay on Twitter at P underscore Samayajula. And he also works with Hindus for Human Rights, and you can follow them on Twitter for at Hindus4HR and find out more about Hindus for Human Rights at Hindus4HumanRights.org. Pranay, with all of our guests, our final question is, I promise, what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write the Biden administration, like its predecessors, remains close with a number of governments that routinely commit egregious rights violations from Israel to Saudi Arabia. There's something especially sickening, however, about correctly identifying the themes and tenets of white supremacy as a poison while still shaking hands and sharing the stage with a leader who's directly responsible for enabling and encouraging that same poison in only slightly altered form to seep into another country's soil. So does support for, in these examples, Israel and Saudi Arabia justify in the hearts of white supremacists here in the United States deadly violence in the name of the great replacement theory and Christian nationalism. I mean, I think it certainly sends a message that they are going to, um, you know, that even if the government is issuing rhetorical condemnations of their ideology, that they still have leeway, you know, to, to continue to recruit people into their cause, to continue to spread their hate. I mean, I think even like obviously you know the biden administration has more been more more uh strong handed and it's supposed crackdown on white supremacists and extremist groups than the trump administration was before it but still these groups are continuing to remain active they're continuing to spread their hate on social media platforms because it's not the government who controls those it's the tech corporations who would hurt their bottom line to crack down on that and so i think that you know this is just yet another signal to them that you know we don't have to worry as much about the rhetoric of the government um, because at the end of the day, as long as we play our cards right, we continue to have the upper hand in terms of being on the rise. Pranay, I cannot thank you enough for uh, being on the show today. This writing that you have at Jacobin is amazing and people should be checking out your writing at Protein Magazine as well. Thank you so much for being on the show. Do not be surprised if I bug you an email again to have you back on the show. This has really been a fantastic conversation, and I truly appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was this was great, and I really really appreciated it. All right, take care. Enjoy your weekend. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a really dumb business model. This is hell if what you just heard from Panay on the connection between hate, fear, conspiracy theories, mass violence, and the far right from the United States to India, if that was in some way enlightening, deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and this podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support of completely, or I should say for a completely listener supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, and a few, oh, we'll uh, get to that in a second. The person where they're, yeah, let's just do this now. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? Did you hate gym class, Lindsay? I did, but you know, I went to a high school that didn't have gym, so I I was only in it in middle school. I, it was terrible. I had to take gym, I think, in high school, but in middle school, I had to take it, and uh, I, I'm legally blind, and there was a gigantic gym, and they had a divider to separate the boys from the girls. And at one point, a friend of mine said, hey, come over here and look over uh, on the other side of the divide and check out the girls' side. And so I looked. I couldn't see people other than just blobs playing volleyball or whatever they were playing. And the gym teacher caught me and beat me with a rope. Nice. Yeah. So Sounds like a good experience. Yeah, it was a great experience. Really, really made me the better person later in life that I am today. That's what gym's for, right? Make you stronger. Exactly. <laughs> or make you cry, whichever one you'd like to choose. So how are our listeners responding so far? Uh, well, you sent me one via email. I guess I'll start with that. All right. From Daniel Z. Uh, what's a policy that will make gym class an even more awful experience? Arm gym teachers. Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. That's yeah. Intense. Let's not even okay. <laughs> bring that idea in the mind of some people. Uh, yeah, we got shooting practice at gym today. Uh, <laughs> Yikes. Okay. Um, on Facebook, Mark A says, "Ohio wants to pass a law for mandatory genital inspections." When I was a kid growing up in Ohio, the coach didn't wait for the government to say so. <laughs> so we're all reliving our trauma in this question. Apparently, right now. apparently. <laughs> all right. Adam A says a new fitness tracker app, but it's just Dwayne the Rock Johnson yelling at you and calling you a pussy. Can we come up with a different word for what that last word is? Because I'm really getting tired of using that word to explain that thing. I know. I mean, I, I really don't know. A pussy cat? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, there you that go. That makes it radio appropriate, there right? There you go. Yeah. Cat to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Michael C. says, make me show up. <laughs> make me show up? I don't know what emphasis. Okay. And then, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience? 
Ronaldo Magaldi says spaghetti wrestling. <laughs> That's our own Ronaldo Magaldi, and I have no idea what spaghetti wrestling is. Me neither. Do you want me to finish <laughs> the uh, responses let's do th- on Twitter? Uh, let's do the rest one uh, after Jeffy. Okay, sounds good. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, and right now we we really, really need your help, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. You also get a discount on all of our merchandise because we we give you a special secret uh, code word that you can use when you're purchasing stuff and you get a discount. So it's yet another reason to join us on Patreon. On Thursday's Patreon this week, well, this week earlier, we spoke with Henry Giroux uh, about his writing for Truth Out to end mass shootings. We need to change the deeper structure of life in the United States, as always. Henry was intense and amazing, but one of the things Henry mentioned really stuck with me, and that is neoliberalism's goal of getting us to forget, to uh, no longer remember what has happened in the past, to vacate any historical context in order to undermine any critical thinking that would help us better understand today's events, thus simplifying them and avoiding any critical analysis that might reveal the desire of the super-rich to not only control all of our lives, but to impose authoritarianism, if not straight-up fascism from which they can profit even more than they already do to have even more power over us than they already have. And that critique by Henry perfectly fit in with the first edition of Seb's Soapbox, producer uh, Sebastian Vupper's now regular commentary that provides that much-needed historical context that is now within the mainstream media and is some, you know, within this mainstream media is completely lost. So I'll be discussing that kind of erasing of history on Patreon tomorrow. We'll also be sharing an interview that we did with Henry Giroux in the past. I think it's going to be from 2010 or 2011. Did you get any email about that yet, Lindsay? I did. Oh, what, what is it going to it's be? It's actually from 2013. Okay. It's the third interview with Henry Giroux on the cruelty that permeates American culture and his book, The Educational Deficit and the War on Youth. Oh, sweet. So, see, he's uh, Henry's been in this uh, realm of writing for quite a while and been warning us about it for a while here on This Is Hell. He's always one of our very favorite people to have on the show. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live Thursdays. Podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. We got an email. We also got an email at Chuck at This Is Hell.com from listener John L., who I ran into last night when I came over here to print out this week or today's script. Uh, ran into at Carrie's Lounge downstairs, 2251 West Devon Avenue. He was here for trivia night, which was actually pretty entertaining while I was having a single beer before going home and enjoying a frozen pot pie. Uh, so anyway, John writes, hope you are feeling better. I wanted to follow up on the rebroadcast while you were hospitalized of your 2005 conversation with Larry Ty, that's T-Y-E, author of Rising from the Rails, Pullman Porters, and the Making of the Black Middle Class. Lindsay, this is going to blow your mind. I don't remember if I told you during This Is Hell office hours or one of the This Is Hell parties or one of the times I ran into you at Carrie's, but I worked for Amtrak for 10 years before I switched to the lawyer thing. 
He's an international human rights lawyer. This was in the 1980s, and I remember working with some of those guys. They were fascinating to work with, especially on the city of New Orleans train with the old passenger cars from the Pullman days. Those guys and the non-racist old white conductors were great. I was even called George by an elderly white lady. I didn't know why she did that until it was explained to me. When I started a lot of uh, the new when I started a lot of the new hires were younger white guys like me. One of the holdover duties when I started was that we had to shine the sleeping car passengers shoes. Well, semi-privileged white guys were not going to do that, so we had a revolt. Our motto was shine your own damn shoes. Eventually, Amtrak backed down and stopped requiring us doing that. Great interview of Larry Ty. Thanks for the memories, John. So thanks, John. And you may have mentioned it in the past while we were hanging out downstairs at Carrie's, because it sounds vaguely familiar, like you told me you worked as a porter, but not the rest of the story. For those who might not know, Pullman porters were told to respond to boy because slavery was never really ended in the United States. But at other times, they would be called George, as in George Pullman, the racist and violent owner of the Pullman cars, who also ran the company town of Pullman, which is now a neighborhood on Chicago's south side, and in 2015 became the first National Park Service unit in Chicago, now known as the Pullman National Monument. And if you accidentally stumble on a... Three Stooges short on TV where they're on a train. You can bet there's going to be racist stereotypes depicted by black actors, and they're always referred to as George. And this whole boy and George thing starts making me wonder where boy George got his name from, and now i got to look that up. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll be announcing this week's winner. We'll also share this week in Rotten History and tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell. And, Lindsay, I know you have Hefe on the line. What? Will the real fantasy please stand up? On the extremely dark satirical show The Boys, about psychotic superheroes and their corporate and military ties, the white supremacist leader of them all, Homelander, a kind of Superman knockoff, announces to a broadcast audience of hundreds of millions, I'm through being persecuted for my strength. Although having been a murderous, narcissistic rapist throughout his career with impunity, he's now had enough. From now on, he's going to say what's on his mind. I'm not one of you. You are weak. I'm better than you. I'm through apologizing for that, he says. It's a timely speech, given that we, the Unter people, who believe we should at least have a partial say in the color and texture of the tyranny governing us, are being backed up against the wall by the self-designated Ubermenschen. In Nietzsche's dichotomy, the Ubermenschen, the selfish and self-aggrandizing who believe they deserve more and need to follow no morality but their own, are realists, and the rest of us, who aspire to a society out from under the boot of such oppressive narcissists, are dreamers. 
That's a strong rhetorical current in U.S. popular discourse, and it's not solely the province of the right wing. Recall how often the pejorative phrases, Bernie will just wave his magic wand, or leftist progressives want to give everybody a pony, have been repeated by centrists to bash the less-than-acquiescent left since 2016. Prepare for such rhetorical slime balloons to be wielded again over the next two years kind of like a magic wand, to sprinkle condescension over every demand from their base a centrist Democrat doesn't find it expedient to support. In the strong view, then, the weak are meant to drudge along, serving and slaving, pleasing and groveling, sickening and dying, never complaining, never resisting on pain of injury, deprivation, or death. And this they call realistic. Who's the real dreamer? Those who want to contribute to society however much or little they're able and be given back enough to thrive pleasantly? Or those who want to rip us off without our objecting? Those who want to be all they can be, regardless of who they destroy along the way, lift themselves above the herd as heroes and kings, and achieve riches and ease beyond their wildest fantasies at the expense of communal peace and the preservation of a beautiful world that belongs to us all, and without the rest of us speaking a word of condemnation, let alone criticism? Who's really living in a fantasy here? Who is weaving a fairy tale? There are atheists who mock those who worship invisible divinities, but these same atheists turn right around and worship humans as if they're divine, taking a flesh-and-blood person and imbuing them with godly powers. Those who give to charity to gain merit with a god or to align with the values of a long-dead spiritual leader seem to me less childish than someone who demands millions of weak people starve quietly so the person they idolize can be rewarded with ungodly wealth. The show I mentioned at the top, The Boys, plays the satirical game of asking, what if a destructive social idea were actually true? In this case, the idea is that the self-proclaimed Untermensch is real and deserves more. What if they actually were uber? What if your delusional Nietzschean fantasy were true? And the answer the show discovers by exploring a satirical thought experiment is, if there were real Ubermenschen and they were privileged the way our pretend Ubermenschen are, things would be even worse. It's a perceptive statement on how the capitalist myth of social Darwinism indoctrinates its subjects. The golden age of streaming entertainment has given us other popular allegorical condemnations of capitalist inequality. The Netflix fantasy from Korea, Squid Game, in which contestants are compelled to fight to their deaths to entertain the uber-wealthy, diagrams the infantilization of those overburdened by debt. Apple TV's Severance illustrates through a science fiction narrative device the Marxist concept of alienation of labor and the way we submit to and collaborate in our own enslavement. These three offerings, as I said, are popular. They articulate persistent obstacles society stumbles over by bowing to profit-driven priorities and a manufactured aristocracy. Other, <clears throat> other offerings, of course, such as The Handmaid's Tale, HBO's The Watchmen, Jordan Peele's Get Out, and Us, along with variations on survival against the vicious mob of this or that socioeconomic group, allegorize 
other issues with varying levels of nuance. Such dystopias had a rebirth with Children of Men back in 2006 and have been accumulating ever since, but really pointed dystopian critiques of capitalism have been a long time coming and were certainly never expected to be this popular. The rise in popularity of anti-capitalist dystopian fictions is understandable. After all, the fossil fuel industry that's been ruling the world economy for over a hundred years seems poised to topple. While the end of petro-tyranny is both inevitable and welcome, humans are innately aware that such a giant cannot be felled without taking a great deal of civilization and possibly the planet down with it. Capitalism is poised at a critical and dangerous brink, and we all know it. So naturally, dystopias critiquing capitalism are popular. It's more difficult to fathom why such critiques have not taken hold in the actual, supposedly factual news. Or is it difficult to fathom? News in the USA has never adhered overly close to events in the real world, especially when such events demonstrate how abominable U.S. policies are. So the relationship between the U.S. military, the teetering fossil fuel industry, and the threats to civilization from climate change and global heating are never made much of. You won't see Anderson Cooper, Tucker Carlson, Brian Williams, Jake Tapper, or any mass market anchor talent elucidate the way a manufactured spectacle of colorful millionaires and billionaires enjoying their privileges feeds the militarism of our economy, siphoning resources from public schools, public shelter, and public health. You won't see any mass market anchor clown detail the overburdening of our economy with debt instruments while making the connection to the way usurious debt conduces community and domestic violence, let alone how it dissolves familial and communal relationships in less extreme ways, increasing social stability. The Onion might touch on how dehumanizing it is to work at a meaningless job under threat of becoming homeless, but you won't read about it in the New York Times. And that's because it's all too real. The owners of news don't like hearing the truth about themselves and the nation and world they own stock in. They're much more comfortable with alternative truth, where everything old is new again, everything black is white, every day is night, and every fantasy is real. Reality doesn't sell unless it's fictionalized. Reality can only be tolerated by the owning class if it's positioned as an artistic product. Is it possible the dreamers of a live-and-help-live society have had it right all along? Yes, it is. Does the craft of channeling one's imagination hold more possibilities for moving the people and creating popular rebellion than the art of spinning reality to fit a nation's propaganda does? We can only hope. I'd like to think so. Hey, a guy can dream, can he? This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Do you remember when Jake Tapper would come on our show back in 2000 and 2001 and tell us how uh, President George W. Bush stole the election? Remember when that would happen? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, did it that did. really happen? Yes, Wait, did that, you dream that? I think that, you might have dreamed No, that happened twice on the show. That happened. He was on twice to talk about his book. Get out of here. Yes, and you, there's no way that guy's going to say anything about George Bush stealing the election in 2000 ever again, and I'm betting that those books... He's doing everything he can to make sure that they're not even on used bookstore shelves, I'm pretty sure. Okay. So uh, what's new about you? 
What's new by me? Well, I think I won the uh, the uh, question from hell contest. Well, first thing, of all, but, you can't. But you haven't win. heard my answer yet. Well, but uh, you can't. The contract. No, I know. Very but you know length, what? Very lengthy contract we signed with you. Very but, lengthy. I, but what if my answer is God's favorite answer? <laughs> then tell us <laughs> what your answer to this week's question from hell is. Oh, you don't want to wait for it? Well, then I'll tell you. My policy, the policy that's going to make gym class even worse, yeah. everyone in class has to form a human centipede. Oh, no, dude, I did see that. <laughs> Is that. I don't think that's going to be on the air. Because it's God's favorite, and you can't, you know. Uh, you know, I don't know. What's what's new with me is that I'm... Uh, There's no I'm, construction I'm, sound. I know, because I'm dog-sitting for the, uh, the director of Waterboy and the Wedding Singer again. <laughs> that's right. And uh, I will be again, although I don't know if it'll extend through Wednesday next week. Are those films the, constantly looped in the house, so you have to watch them over and over again? They're they're easy they're easy to access, but I, I can I I can watch other things. Oh man, Adam! Sandler. I mean, I have to watch them, you know, for a while, and then I get to I get a few hours of my own. Adam Sandler as Bobby Boucher. I mean, that's like you know, that's like Peter O'Toole as Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, that's some um, that's a real tour de force there. Did you ever see, uh, oh, I'm not going to go through his filmography to tell you about his brilliant acting. In Punch Drunk Love, is that what you're going to tell me now? No, I was going to say, uh, don't mess with the Zohan. <laughs> yes, I did see part of it. <laughs> Why you like it's, that movie so much, I'm really not too sure. Because it's so, because it's very uh, accurate. <laughs> there are very accurate caricatures of Israelis in it. <laughs> and it's very funny. And you could say that because if you wanted to be, you could be Israeli. I no, I don't know if I could at this point in Israel's uh, no tyranny. Yeah, maybe not. Whatever, whoever's controlling it, I don't even know if anybody's controlling it. I think the steering wheel broke and that thing's just <laughs> headed off a cliff. But it's not for me to say. <laughs> no, it's not for you to say. But I appreciate you saying it. <laughs> well, I, uh, well, you're the one person probably, Jeffy. Yes, dear. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, you do too. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. I'm serious. I need somebody to prove me wrong. Send me an email at chuck at thisishell.com and tell me why this is not God's favorite radio show. And I do need evidence. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share the rest of our answers from our listeners. This week's question from hell is, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? You know, I was thinking about being in gym class in 2008 when Obama won the election, uh-huh. and our gym teacher sat us down in the women's locker room and told us why, I don't know, was it Mitt Romney or John McCain? I don't remember who was running against Obama, but she was like, they should have won. Obama shouldn't have won. Wow. <laughs> and then she also tried to sell us those um like foot pads that suck the like toxins out of your feet supposedly. Oh, wow. That have been completely disproven. Yeah, you could just pour hot water on them and they it, turn black. Like. Wow. Was this a public school? <laughs> yes. Wow. Of course it was a public school. It was in Arizona, too. Oh, well, public- <laughs> which is pretty close to a Christian school in Illinois. Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, on to the responses. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. <laughs> Yeah, so let's see. What policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? Andrew, more like Blandrew, says, 
Everyone running must go through the perfume department of the nearest retail chain. Wow, I hate that department of every store. That just reminds me of like the best SpongeBob episode there is. In which is, episode is that? They have to go through the perfume department. Oh, they, they actually <laughs> have to go through the same thing. That's one of the things that I really am starting to annoy me about food delivery drivers. They all tend to be wearing the entire perfume department of a retail store. Oh my gosh, I used to be a food delivery driver but i also don't wear any synthetic fragrances i can smell synthetic fragrance on people from like a mile away me too somebody gets on the train (laughs) oh my god i have to move to the next car it really Uh drives me nuts (laughs) all right sam skin apostle says mandatory shirts versus skins uh somebody replied to that saying grim yeah that is grim (laughs) uh what policy will make gym class even more awful? Uh, Percy Bust Shelley at Proletarosaurus says oiled dodgeballs. Oiled dodgeballs? Yes. Somebody else had another dodgeball reference earlier. Uh-huh. And Gregory Knapp says mandatory rope burn. <laughs> <laughs> Greg's the one who asked about uh, you and your contact information. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I realized I didn't say my social media, but I... That one social media account I probably could share is my um, Alley Finds, my Dumpster Finds account called at Dumpster underscore Demons on Instagram. At, again, repeat it. Dumpster underscore Demons. Okay. Is that the rest of the answers that we have so far? There's one more. Okay. And For the Love of Pete says, arming all gym teachers to protect <laughs> against school shootings and body cams to ensure they don't molest when checking the student's sex under Ohio law. Oh my god. Good <laughs> lord. By the way, you were saying that uh, you don't like wearing artificial uh, you know, perfumes or that kind of stuff. I came across a book a little while ago called Unmodified and it's by a woman who writes about why you shouldn't uh, why she does not wear makeup or wear anything other than just her natural look. It's called Unmodified if anybody's interested in that. So the answers I liked most were, yeah, I did like Percy Bust Shelley's response, oiled dodgeballs, uh, for the love of Pete saying, uh, let's see, uh, among arming all gym teachers to protect against school shootings, with the one that uh, Lindsay just read, and, be, and body camps to ensure they don't molest when checking the students' sex under Ohio law. Again, as Andrew, uh, Lindsay read earlier today, uh, Andrew more like Blandrew saying everyone running must go through the perfume department of the nearest retail chain. Really love that one. F tweet. Uh, Fitzgerald saying we learn to play cricket. Uh, Satisfilling memes for hungry, hungry, thirsty teens saying not only is Baby Shark the only workout music allowed, but you have to listen to it. I also liked Walter B saying jazzercising to Tucker Carlson. Kim G saying hyenas, which is genius. Uh, Steve K saying dodge kettleball. And if you've ever picked up a kettleball, you know that that would be a very disturbing sport. Warren L saying confess your fears before the entire class beforehand. Scott P saying a two students enter, one student leaves policy to the weekly joust on top of the soccer goal posts. Uh, Yekaterina O, who's been on our show in the past, saying when I was in seventh grade, gym at my school was uh, during the first two periods, two to three times a week. All winter long, we had to spend the first two hours cross-country skiing, then sweaty, smelly, and covered in snow, we proceeded to study math. 
Let's do that. Michael C. saying, make me show up. Aaron D. saying, replacing hernia test with probe for COVID vaccine microchip. And Neil C. saying, random drug testing. Any of those really stick out to you, Lindsay, as your favorite this week? No. I know. You have to pick. They're okay. Damn it. I was so hoping I could just push this responsibility off onto you. Uh, let's go with... Jeez. Uh, 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 for the love of Pete. At Shikey Touch. Arming all gym teachers to protect against school shootings and body cams to ensure they don't molest when checking the students' sex under Ohio law. Uh, for the love of Pete... For the love of God, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support and we and send us your mailing address and we'll get it in the mail post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? I would say the mandatory playing of badminton because, first... Nobody calls it badminton. Every, everyone, nobody calls it, I'm sorry, badminton. Everyone drops the N, so it sounds like badminton, which sounds like some kind of derogatory term to the lower peninsula of Michigan. And anyone who pronounces the N as in badminton will be outed as a Canadian. Also, because when you are playing badminton, you will be tortured by immature giggling every time you hear the word shuttlecock. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history, which uh, is now happening right now instead of earlier this week because I was sick. On June 7th, 1900, 122 years ago this week, in the small town of Kiowa, Kansas, a devoutly religious hotel owner named Carrie Nation showed up at Dobson's Saloon toting a bag of rocks. She shouted, quote, Men, I have come to save you from a drunkard's fate. Then she began hurling rocks and bricks at the liquor bottles stacked behind the bar, loudly reciting prayers as bar patrons recoiled and shards of glass flew across the room. When she ran out of rocks, she grabbed a pool cue and used that. Then she went on to bust up two more saloons on the same street, smashing bottles, cutting beer lines, and emptying kegs. Remember, this is 1900. This is not during Prohibition. Carrie Nation, whose first husband had died of alcoholism, was angry that political leaders were doing nothing about illegal saloons operating what was supposed to be a dry state, Kansas. And when she began traveling around Kansas, using a hatchet to smash, ta smash taverns, her second husband filed for divorce and she quickly became a national celebrity. Ignoring persistent death threats and periodic arrests, she went on speaking tours denouncing the sale of alcohol and sold pictures of herself holding a Bible while wielding a hatchet. But despite the common view of Carrie Nation as a puritanical harridan, yes, harridan, some historians have argued that her misguided fanaticism was motivated by an otherwise legitimate concern for social justice. In her speeches, 
She stressed that she broke up saloons because, in her eyes, alcoholics were victims, while saloon keepers and corrupt politicians were the real villains. In the years before embarking on her saloon-smashing crusade, she had routinely visited prison inmates, often arguing for their release, and had collected food and clothing for poor people of all races whom she housed and cared for at her hotel. She'd also been kicked out of her church for defending a woman whom the minister and congregation had publicly accused of adultery. Carrie Nation explained her tavern busting as a last resort in a social system that denied women the political power enjoyed by men. That is the power of voting. As she put it, quote, you wouldn't give me the vote. So I had to use a rock. After establishing domestic violence shelters for women in Arkansas and Kansas City, she died in 1911, nine years before Prohibition and 19 years before the ratification of women's suffrage. So first, you got to wonder what staying at a devoutly religious hotel is like, because it sounds god-awful. Second, if she was so anti-alcohol, what explains her intense support for vandalism as a political tool? Third, this was clearly a personal vendetta for her first husband's death from alcoholism. And if she was so anti-alcohol, why couldn't she keep her husband off the bottle using the same tactics she used against the taverns? Just throw rocks at him and hit him with a pool cue. And was she targeting the places where her first husband was getting alcohol in a supposedly dry state? I think she was. And given her temper, how did she get a second husband? Fourth, and not to be a dick... But Jesus was known to provide wine and was a drinker himself. So how the hell is a Bible uh, the source of her anti-alcohol fanaticism? Also, what the hell is a harridan? So I had to look that up. A harridan is a strict, bossy, or belligerent old woman. And it's just a really horrible thing to call Carrie Nation or any woman as the public was doing at the time. That's not a word that Ronaldo was using to describe her. That's what people were describing her in the 19th century and 20th century. So let's all be thankful that is no longer a word in common usage, except, you know, when we're citing it here during Rotten History, because otherwise she sounds like a, a badass. And is there anything more badass than saying, you wouldn't give me the vote, so I had to use a rock? Also in Rotten History on June 9th, 1963, 59 years ago this week, Fanny Lou Hamer, a field secretary and community organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, S-N-C-C, was one of several African-American civil rights activists arrested at a bus station in Winona, Mississippi, while returning home from a voter registration workshop in South Carolina. The group had angered police by seating themselves in a, at a white, whites-only lunch counter. Hamer, a uh, 45-year-old woman whose grandparents had been enslaved and who had witnessed a lynching when she was only eight years old, later recalled how during her four days in jail, she was repeatedly beaten by cops who entered her jail cell wielding blackjacks because, you know, cops may not have a long history of stopping mass murders in schools or stopping lynchings or helping a person begging for their life while drowning. But they sure as hell have a long history of racist violence and torture. Hamer permanently lost her sight in one eye and also suffered severe kidney damage while being beaten by cops. Lawyers from SNCC later pressed uh, charges against the police and took them to court, but an all-white jury acquitted them. Apparently, not only is justice blind, but cops will do the blinding. Hamer soon resumed her activism, most famously with a primetime televised speech at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. 
She also ran for Congress that year, explaining that while she knew she had little chance of being elected, she just wanted to show Americans that a black woman could run for political office. But Fannie Lou Hamer never fully recovered from the kidney damage done by the police beating, which would contribute to her death in 1977 at the age of 59. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Thanks to this week's producers, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill, Sebastian Vupper, and as always, Alexander Jerry. Thanks for all of the things that you continue to do for the show. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth and to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And thanks, of course, to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood, just because. Lindsey, who are our scheduled guests to be on next week's show? Next week, it's very exciting. We have confirmed Dr. Laura Basu of the Institute for Cultural Inquiry at Utrecht University will discuss her open democracy article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition. I have a feeling that some of our listeners are not going to be happy about that interview, but I think it sounds fascinating. If they can pay attention to it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Sorry. No, that is fine. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay, Uh, who else is scheduled to be on next week's show? We have historian Donna Murch will be on to talk about her new book, Asada Taught Me. State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. I'm really looking forward to that. We've been trying to get Donna on the show with that uh, new book for a while. It it was publication issues, and uh, finally it's come out. came out in April on Haymarket, and so we're really looking forward to having one of our very favorite guests, Donna Merch, back on the show. We'll also have Sebastian Vupper with another edition of Seb's Soapbox, and as always, a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin and Rotten History with the help of Ronaldo Magaldi. Finally... Join us on Saturday, July 23rd, for the celebration of Carrie's Lounge's 50th year in business that will include the opening of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art Show, featuring, as it always does, art by listeners or suggested by listeners of This Is Hell. And if you have not already, put the This Is Hell 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party and the closing of the This Is Art Art Show in your calendar. That's taking place the last Saturday of summer, Saturday, September 17th, during summer's final weekend. That's the Carrie's Lounge 50th Year in Business celebration with the opening of the This Is Art Show happening on July 23rd. I will be here for that. And then on September 17th, we are going to have the closing of the This Is uh, art art show that's the this that's going to be during this the this is hell 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party which will be featuring live music food and a raffle as it always does and if you are an artist or have an artist you would like to suggest having their to show their work here during the this is art art show email me at chuck at this is hell.com with a sample of your or their work if you're a musician or would like to suggest a musical act to perform during the party send you or your or their music or a link to a place where we can find said music to chuck at this is hell.com and if you'd like to donate something something hellish to be raffled off during the party contact us again at chuck at this is hell.com or just Send whatever you want us to raffle off to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 
60659. Talk to you on Patreon tomorrow at patreon.com slash this is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've shared with you during this week's This Is Hell. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.